The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Good morning and welcome to Sportbox. Troubled times for Beijing. Chinese industrial output and retail sales both miss estimates in October as CNBC learns trade talks with the U.S. have hit a snag. Fed Chair Jerome Powell hits back at President Trump's call for negative rates, telling Congress the move would not be suitable. Our economy is in a strong position. We have growth. We have, uh, we have a strong consumer sector. We have uh, inflation that's a bit below target. So the very, very low uh, and even negative rates that we see around the world would not be appropriate. A whole new market. Disney shares soar after the media giant rakes in 10 million signups on day one of its new streaming service, Disney Plus, contributing nearly three quarters of the Dow's record gains. And the S&P 500 notches its 20th record closing high of 2019, putting the index on course for one of its strongest calendar year performances in decades. Three key readings of Chinese economic health have missed expectations amid ongoing trade tensions and domestic growth jitters. Industrial production growth slowed to just 4.7%, while October retail sales also missed forecasts. Fixed asset investment for January to October recorded its lowest growth rate since records began in 1996. U.S.-China trade talks are reportedly deadlocked once again, despite the two sides saying they had an agreement in principle just one month ago. According to CNBC sources, Washington is pushing for even stronger concessions on intellectual property and forced technology transfer in exchange for lifting some existing tariffs. Separately, the proposed purchase of U.S. farm goods has also become an obstacle, with Chinese officials reportedly wary of assigning a numerical level that the country would need to meet. Eunice Yun filed this report from Beijing. The agricultural goods purchases were supposed to be the low-hanging fruit, but it appears that the trade talks have hit a snag over the purchases of products such as soybeans. The Wall Street Journal is now reporting that the Chinese side is wary of committing to a number in the text of an agreement and wants to avoid looking as though it agreed to a deal that is too one-sided in favor of Washington. If you remember, since President Trump first announced a phase one deal with Vice Premier Liu He in October, he's repeated that China agreed to buy as much as $50 billion worth of U.S. crops. The two are also at odds over whether tariffs should be rolled back and by how much. The U.S. business community had hoped a limited deal could suspend tariffs set to kick in on December 15th, but the Phase 1 agreement is still supposed to address farm purchases, a currency agreement, tougher IPR protections, an opening of China's financial sector, and a mechanism to enforce an agreement. The stickier structural issues would be addressed later. But if the negotiators are unable to agree to some of the easier points like soybeans, that doesn't bode well for future phases of a trade deal, let alone the first one. Eunice Yoon, CBC Business News, Beijing. 
Let's take a quick check of the market reaction across the Asian region. Mixed bag for Australia and China, both modestly firmer versus losses for the Hong Kong and Japanese stock markets. Those ones peeling back by three quarters of a percent. So just an element of risk off across some of those Southeast Asian markets and a little bit further north too. Michael O'Sullivan has joined us, author of The Leveling and former CIO Credit Suisse Wealth Management. Michael, welcome. Good, Good morning. morning. What we're talking about in the headlines this morning around trade, very nuts and bolts sort of conversation around getting a trade deal done but it's been months this has been dragging on doesn't feel as though we're getting even to phase one at this point it's been months and it's been layered over with all of this uh, superficial uh, and noise in many respects from the, the the white house in particular i mean all it shows i think is that the world is beginning to to fracture trade is the basis of of globalization um, and, and in this specific deal, we've moved further and further away from the initial aims, certainly of the U.S. side, maybe uh, six weeks or sorry, six months ago. Um, and to me, it looks at very, very best that we just get a, a cosmetic sort of ceasefire. Uh, we now have a problem with soybeans. The, the swine fever in China means that they can afford to uh, consume less uh, soybeans. So all the little parts of the deal are beginning to, to come apart. Um, and it wouldn't surprise me if we have another uh, rupture as we head into to Christmas. Do you think that both sides want to get a deal done at this point? I mean, they each are facing their own pressures and both are under a huge amount uh, of pressure to remain hard, a hard stance, retain a hard stance to their constituencies in either uh, in both regions. So what do you think both sides actually want at this point? I think at this stage, both sides want a sense of, uh, of peace and uh, uh, I think in particular the U.S. has gone into this badly prepared and it will, will now, I think, have to settle for something uh, second best. And if you, if you look at the underlying concerns, intellectual property, etc., access to Chinese markets, and we had President Macron uh, and the European Trade Commissioner in China discussing the same things last week, um, none of that has been, been, been resolved. Um, and I think China has actually played this very well. They've been very, very patient, uh, as they, they tend to be. Um, and they may get off, if I can put it like that, uh, with a very small concession. Um, and I think it leaves the, the White House stranded, certainly not, maybe not politically, but certainly economically, in terms of having not reached their objectives. What are we expecting in a, in a phase one deal anyway? Because when we're talking about the, the lack of agreement on forced technology transfers and intellectual property, you always got a view earlier on that that might be phase two, won't even really be tackled in a genuine fashion in phase one. So why does it seem to be such a sticking point that a natural question comes up today, given that uh, that was meant to be yeah. about the harder stuff that would get tackled later? This is interesting. So I think that this goes to uh, emerging divisions within the US team, and it also goes to lobbying in the States, Corporate America, the Chamber of Commerce. Um, one of the reasons they had been, um, I think, able to support the president in the way he's pursued the trade deal is because they thought that this would, would be resolved, and it hasn't been. Um, and some of the tougher members of the U.S. team, the Navarros of the, of, the, of the world, have been pushing for this, the Treasury Secretary much, much less so. So we're beginning to see, I think, some of the divisions in the U.S. trade team begin to emerge. Now, back in April, we were at a point where uh, the rhetoric was very positive when it came to a trade deal. And President Trump, when he spoke in New York just a couple of days ago, referenced that period when they essentially had agreed a deal. And then uh, the U.S. administration, he says, re received a phone call effectively from China saying, no, we're actually going to renege on three to four of the conditions that we said we'd agree to. Have things actually changed from that point where the risks of that happening have diminished in a material way? Or could we be in the same situation again? Yeah, there's, there's a lot of 
doubt as to what President Trump, uh, what happens on President Trump's uh, phone line, not just with China, but also with, with Ukraine. Um, things have changed in that the, uh, the underlying uh, quality of the deal hasn't improved at all. I think that what hasn't changed as well and where there is a, an ongoing risk now is that markets have been prepared to believe that a deal is imminent. And we've been hearing this for, for the last couple of months. And I think if we don't get that very, very soon, uh, market patience may wear out. We've just heard that, that we're, we've hit, I think, 20 new highs so far this year. We haven't had a correction in about 22, uh, or a sell-off in about 22 days. Um, so I think market patience will be tested in coming days. Makes you a little bit nervous uh, coming up to the so-called Santa Claus rally that the presents yeah. might have been delivered a little bit early on for markets. I want to take you to some of the data out of China today because in your previous life you spent a lot of time crunching some of these numbers and the quality of the data seems to be unwinding yet again in the Chinese market. A miss on industrial output, 4.7% yeah. uh, clocked up for the year in October. Retail sales, 7.2%. Another miss. Fixed asset investment, 5.2%. Another miss as well. Yeah. So what do we see in the data and what does that suggest about the measures the Chinese authorities will take to stabilize the mainland market? So, so this, this, this really deepens the picture of a, of a, of a serious slowdown uh, in the Chinese economy. I'll be interested to see what oil and what some of the, the European mining stocks do uh, this morning in response to, the, to this uh, data. Uh, so far the Chinese have managed to sort of ebb and tack uh, and, and engage in mini stimuli uh, just to keep the economy on track. What I find interesting um, is that in the last couple of weeks we've had a number of uh, banks uh, fail in China um, and that's been, I wouldn't say it's been kept quiet, but anyone who's, who's, who's tried to um, uh, communicate that on social media has actually been, been, been shut down. Uh, so there is a, a bona fide slowdown going on uh, in, uh, in China um, and I don't think the authorities uh, are going to, to, to launch a, a major stimulus at this stage. I think they will try and, and get a trade truce first. Their hands are tied as well in terms of rate cuts because inflation in China, consumer price inflation is beginning to rise quite rapidly. On that point about consumer price inflation, obviously a huge part of the inflation spike we've seen has come down to pork prices, yeah. more than doubling in the recent data that we got uh, just earlier this week. And I know looking long term at the situation there, you raise an interesting point that uh, this serves as a reminder of how food is at the center of geopolitics. So just expand on how this dynamic might play out in terms of how China relates to the rest of the world. They have a huge amount of land in China, but not a lot of that can actually be used to produce food, and that's part of why they're in this mess. Uh, absolutely. So China is a big country. It has a limited amount of uh, agricultural land, and actually the yield on that land um, has not been improving in recent years. Um, and, and the swine uh, fever has demonstrated a, a bottleneck effectively in the Chinese economy uh, in terms of food and food prices, and historically food prices you can, you know, uh, the, the extreme example is the French Revolution, the Arab Spring. Uh, it tends to provoke unrest and it contributes to a picture in China where maybe the consumer and the household are becoming uh, more squeezed in terms of the, uh, the, the cost of the, the standard of living uh, in the context of an economy that's beginning to slow. Uh, and in the context then of this trade war with the states, it brings food uh, onto the geopolitical stage uh, and makes the supply in, of, uh, of food and food security a really big issue for China in the future. So let me just swing into investment ideas then because we've got a lot of risk on trades taking place at the moment on markets but also equally some protection just in case very much a barbell type of investing strategy that's taken place right over the course of this year. 
How do you think investors are positioned given the risks and given the positives? So, so I think I think short-term investors are not uh, positioned for risk off. If you look at a whole range of indicators, uh, the setup of the volatility market, there there are you know big shorts uh, on on the VIX and VIX products. Um, I think if you look at risk appetite measures, uh, beginning to look quite quite complacent. So people are not set up uh, for bad news in the next couple of uh, of weeks, and I think markets are. Are vulnerable in that sense to a small correction. That's the problem, then. If you're suggesting that they're not set up properly and we get a, a negative shock of some form, doesn't that mean we could have the volatility like we saw at the end of last year? Oh, absolutely. I think we're we're, we're overdue that. Um, again, you look at the number of days uh, we've been since we've had any kind of sell-off, um, and markets are still under the spell of the the promise of a trade deal, not also under the spell of uh, of central banks. So I think markets short term are uh, are complacent, uh, and we should. We shouldn't be surprised uh, to see a, a sort of a small correction in coming weeks if we get more bad news in China and trade. All right. Uh, well, leave the conversation there for now, Michael. Uh, stay with us for more discussions in just a little while. Let's just shift gears and talk European cars. Tariffs on European uh, cars and auto parts hang in the balance today amid a closely watched U.S. deadline on whether to impose levies on national security grounds. President Trump overnight said only that he had been briefed and would make a decision, quote, fairly soon. Now, Sylvia joins us around the desk with more. Sylvia, we have seen a pretty strong reaction in markets earlier this week, autos rallying on the expectation that President Trump would delay this decision. Uh, what's the latest in terms of what you're hearing? This is a big deal, as you mentioned, for European automakers. This sector is super important for the European Union as a whole as well. But the expectation at this stage is that President Trump will delay this decision on car tariffs. That could potentially happen as early as today. And one of the reasons why that's the expectation is that we heard from uh, the U.S. Commerce Secretary Wilbur Ross saying last month that actually new talks between the U.S. and the EU could help avoiding car tariffs. And then we also heard from President Juncker last week, the head of the European Commission, saying that the President Trump would not be imposing car tariffs on Europe. But is this good enough? Well, what we know really is that uh, the delaying of tariffs would actually be helpful in a way for the European auto sector. But on the other hand, it doesn't exclude that possibility. And so the uncertainty could drag for more for a couple more months. I kind of wonder if they're in a better position. Will we have a different story to tell today? I mean, it's been a tale of war in the sector. There have been deep investments into future technologies, huge changes around regulation and diesel gate. If they're in a much better position, would, would Trump want to target some of these automakers? And we cannot forget the whole context here. This is not the only story when it comes to EU and US trade, right? We had the tariffs on steel and aluminium from Europe last year. The EU retaliated back then. We also have this uh, ongoing dispute between um, the, the sub regarding subsidies to Airbus and Boeing. The US in that context already applied tariffs on European um, on European products as well. So this is not a single story and it's clearly um, just if indeed President Trump applies these tariffs on Europe it would just escalate um, trade tensions with the European Union. Michael, what do you think? I mean, we've got a sector that's been badly beaten up. 
it's never really been in uh, yeah. quite this position before. Equally, you've got automakers globally that are looking to cut partnerships to try and lower their investment costs. Do you think Trump might step back because of those structural issues in the sector? I, I think uh, the issue of autos is fiendishly complex, as the, um, the trade negotiation between the US and the NAFTA partners showed. Um, because of supply chains. Um, and the biggest exporters of cars from the US to China are actually the European car manufacturers, the likes of, of Daimler Chrysler. Um, and, and I think the second point is that if the US uh, wants to take Europe on in a trade war, I think that's a mistake because one of the lessons we've learned from Brexit is that when Europe is united and when it has a, a very singular commission-like trade, and trade is one of the more, more, more uh, powerful and better organized commissions uh, in, the, uh, in the EU, um, it, it, it will actually come up against a formidable uh, opponent, uh, and the EU is very, very well organized uh, on, uh, in this area. So I think a trade war between the US and, and, the, and the EU uh, will have much deeper repercussions than that between China uh, and the US. It will potentially be more painful for markets, more painful for the US. Um, so I hope in that respect the, the White House thinks, uh, thinks twice about that. Interesting. Uh, thank you very much, Michael, and also Sylvia. Thank you very much for fleshing out the story for us. Juliana. Let's take a look at where things stand in markets. We saw a little bit of a mixed session come together on Wall Street. The Dow, though, did hit fresh all-time highs. Uh, we saw some major moves in Disney's stock price, which we'll come to in just a moment. But taking stock of the major indices, the Nasdaq closing a touch below the flat line as those... The reports that trade talks between the U.S. and China have stalled, put a little bit of a dampening on sentiment. And we were, of course, closely watching Jerome Powell's testimony before Congress yesterday. He didn't really offer a huge amount new when it comes to his outlook on the U.S. economy, suggesting that he sees little reason to lower rates in December, despite coming under renewed pressure from President Trump earlier this week when he spoke at the Economic Club in New York. So that's the picture for overall markets. But let's dive into the Disney share price, because this was perhaps the most interesting mover uh, of the session yesterday. Disney shares rose more than 7% after they reported that more than 10 million people signed up to its new streaming, streaming service. And to put that number into context, it took Netflix more than two years to see more than 10 million subscribers get on board. So Disney, in the first day uh, of announcing or of releasing its streaming service for uh, subscribers, has seen massive uptake. So we're going to discuss this in more detail with, uh, with Elizabeth coming up shortly, but definitely take note of the major move we saw in Walt Disney's share price. Let's take a look at European opening calls. What are we looking at for the European session? Well, a little bit of a mixed picture, but fairly uh, muted start to trade. Uh, not a lot uh, in terms of magnitude of the moves expected. FTSE 100 essentially seen opening flat, as is the CAC 40 over in France. A little bit of red on the board for the DAX and the FTSE mid. So a mixed picture. Investors seem to be a little bit cautious on the back of those reports that relations between Beijing and Washington might not be as warm as they had hoped. Karen? Coming up on the show, Fed Chair Jerome Powell flags a new normal for the U.S. economy as he begins a two-day test me on Capitol Hill. More after the break. A CNBC signature event. 
East Tech West. CNBC's exclusive invitation-only retreat returns to Nanshao, Guangzhou, China in 2019. We explore all things tech from artificial intelligence to 5G. Join the world's most prolific investors, inventors and entrepreneurs as they share their stories and celebrate innovation. Visit EastTechWest.com for an application to attend. Chair Jerome Powell used the first day of a congressional hearing to suggest that U.S. borrowing costs will be kept at current levels to help support growth. In a more than an hour-long testimony, Powell added that the Fed's economic outlook remains favorable, saying he continues to expect the U.S. will see sustained economic expansion. Powell also told the hearing that rates are, quote, likely to remain appropriate as long as economic data is consistent with that outlook. We do think monetary policy is in a, in a good place. But we're going to be watching very carefully incoming data. And if developments emerge that cause a material reassessment of the outlook, then we'll act appropriately. He also flagged several potential risks, adding that the country faces a fresh economic reality. I think the new normal now is lower interest rates, lower inflation, probably lower growth. And you're seeing that all over the world, not just in the United States. You're seeing it to a much greater extent in many parts of the world than we're we're seeing it here. Finally, Powell gave his opinion on the use of negative rates, responding to President Trump's calls for sub-zero borrowing costs early this week. Negative interest rates would, would certainly not be appropriate in, in the current environment. Our economy is in a strong position. We have growth. We have, uh, we have a strong consumer sector. We have uh, inflation that's a bit below target. So the very, very low uh, and even negative rates that we see around the world would not be appropriate for our economy. The explanation of what happens when you go beyond negative uh, might be up to Michael O'Sullivan, though, author of the Leveling uh, and former CIO of Credit Suisse Wealth Management. Uh, Powell, they're having a go at explaining why it's not appropriate, but just explain in context why negative at this stage would be very negative for the US economy and savers. Well, the, to get to negative, uh, something really bad will have to happen uh, in the US. You, you probably have to endure uh, a, a sizable growth shock, some kind of financial crisis. One of the lessons we're now seeing in Europe is that negative rates uh, and the sort of the dosing of, of QE are running into um, their own limits. And in, in fact, I think uh, we're now seeing the negative marginal effects of uh, generous monetary policy uh, in Europe and, and other, other places. And it's beginning to undercut the banking system who need higher rates, need steeper yield curves to make money. Um, Could the impact be even more dramatic in the United States, say, versus Germany? Because you do a compare and contrast of the German saver versus the American saver and how those two different uh, parts of the world spend money. U.S. consumption has been a huge driver for the U.S. economy. If you had negative rates and you had an impact across for some of those savers in the States, yeah. couldn't that bring down? the U.S. economic growth story? Um, well, the U.S. economic growth story would have to be brought down in the first place to get there. Um, the, there's a big difference between con- uh, household balance sheets and behavior in the U.S. and Germany. So we, we, ha- we have seen U.S. households be much more conservative and rebuild their savings since the, the financial crisis. But uh, in terms of their, their pensions, the 401k, uh, involvement of the housing market, they're much more exposed to risky assets that would probably initially rise first if you got a, a sharp dip in, in rates. Um, and I think one of the points he hasn't brought up um, is that uh, low rates, uh, 
and QE have been one of the drivers of wealth inequality in, in the States. And wealth, the US is the most uh, income unequal in about 50 years. It's the most wealth unequal in centuries. Um, and, and I think central banks, uh, even though this was not their, their initial intention, uh, they bear some of the responsibility for this. And do you think that's because the Federal Reserve puts too much emphasis on financial markets and the ripple effects of low rates on asset prices and view that mechanism as, you know, they're putting too much into that mechanism when in fact that actually breeds the inequality that you just described? It does. I think this particular Fed and this particular Fed chairman uh, is far too sensitive uh, to financial market volatility. If we go back one year, uh, Powell had just been talking about unwinding, uh, slowly unwinding the Fed's uh, balance sheet. And then we had this, this period of volatility uh, and effectively he gave up on that at the first sign of trouble. Uh, so not the kind of uh, force of personality and policy courage we, we, we know from the likes of, uh, of Paul Volcker. And I think that was a huge mistake because it has made the Fed further enthralled and captured by markets, and, and markets know this. I mean, since the uh, the last Fed cut, uh, markets have just been drifting higher, volatility has been, been compressing lower. And it's not a healthy market environment, it's not a healthy policy environment that markets believe that the Fed will do their bidding. To what extent is it the fault of the corporates, though? Because they've really used low interest rates to uh, launch more share buybacks, mm. and that's part of the appreciation equation that we've seen take place in the U.S. Instead of investing this money in their businesses and what could translate into jobs and actually help the inequality issue in the U.S., they've actually just, uh, from in large part, initiated share buybacks. So how much of the onus is actually on the corporates to change that dynamic? It, it is. One of the oddities of this business cycle is that investment has been uh, reasonably low whilst corporate debt has been rising. So, so the U.S. Uh, corporate debt now is, is, I think, relative to assets, the highest it's been in, in 20 years. And that will be a problem in the next two or three years. Um, and of course, they've done buybacks, they've pushed up EPS, which push, pushes up the CEO's uh, remuneration, uh, which, as you say, further contributes to inequality. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Show weekdays on CNBC.